Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta's Ballethnic Dance Company, a classically trained, culturally diverse dance company that blends traditional ballet with artistic influences of other ethnic cultures has been invited to perform at the Alliance Theater and the Kennedy Center. We'll talk with the co-founders of Ballethnic about their signature work, The Leopard Tale, ahead of the company's performance at the Alliance this weekend. First, the King of Rant, Comedian Lewis Black is back on tour with his new show, Off the Rails. The show picks up where the previous one left off in March of 2020. He's performing at the Cobb Energy Center here in Atlanta on April 9th. Before he hits the stage, he joins me now via Zoom. Lewis, welcome back to City Life. Thank you very much. Good to be back. The last time we spoke was in October of 2020, and we were discussing your Grammy-nominated comedy special, Thanks for Risking Your Life, which was filmed minutes before the nation shut down for the pandemic. Yeah. How does it feel to be back on tour, finally in front of a live audience. It's really uh, been great, and the best thing that's happened uh, in terms of my brain in uh, over two years plus. The audience is terrific. They've been exceptional. I've been having a great time. And considering that my, my really my primary relationship is with my audience, it was like being in a separation, a trial separation, that, and I'm glad, I'm glad we decided to get back together. Yeah, I mean, a comedian needs to hear the response of the audience. You need to hear the laughter back. And for all performers, I mean, the pandemic was devastating because you need an audience to complete your art. Yeah. In our previous conversation, I asked you if your state of rage on stage and on screen is just part of the performance or part of your personality. And you said, if I acted like that all the time, I'd be dead within 36 hours. And then you said, it's partly the character, but you think you're funniest when you're angry. How did you come up with that angry, rant-crazed persona? Well, it, it's just pushing a little further what, you know, I'd get angry and I'd start sputtering around my friends and, and they would laugh at it. You know, that was the, where it started. And I found it to be the same once I started doing it on stage, but it took a long time to get there because that's kind of part of my personality and you don't want to put that out there because you're afraid if it's rejected they're rejecting you and so uh it took a while but it's also 
It's learning how to play anger. You can't just be angry or that's the end of it. (laughs) Then you're done. So it was learning. And I, and I across the line uh, uh, on occasion, but I basically, I realize it and tell the audience. And so they, they realize I realize it. And it, and then they kind of realize that it, you know, it, they get the humor of that, which helps if you're honest with them. But I've learned over time just how to uh, play that line. Yeah. I wonder about feedback you might get from people who don't get the humor. Just recently, your St. Patrick's Day little feature on your website. I visit your website often, and I was in hysterics about your saying St. Patrick was the patron saint of liquor distributors. (laughs) But you get pushback from people who say, you're perpetuating Irish stereotypes. This is negative. And, you know, I mean, people can really take you to task. Do you get pushed back? I try not to pay attention to it. That's hard, but I, I have to, I look at it occasionally. I send things out and I expect pushback and I sometimes don't get it. To get it in terms of, look, my, my closest friend is Kathleen Madigan. If she said to me, you know, I, don't, I think you're perpetuating the myth of, of the Irish. You know, I, look, I perpetuate the myth of the, of Wisconsin drinkers, <laughs> and they're proud of it. So it's ludicrous, you know. It's and it's one voice. Okay, I'm going to tell you, nobody cares. I don't have that much of a celebrity status. I mean, I've sent out clips about my, you know, pictures of my mother, and people have said, you know, things about it. You know, said things that they shouldn't have, and you kind of go. Wow, I mean, it's and you don't know if it's a bot oh. or if it's real. Oh yeah, that's the other problem. A lot of the times, I'll respond to them with a direct message if I can, especially on Twitter, and go, you know, I, I'm really sorry that I disappointed you. Mm-hmm. My heart aches because of this. And then they'll write back, I'm really sorry, I didn't really mean it. Uh, you know, they'll because it's part of what causes all of this is they're not in a public square, they're not standing in front of you. It's not something they can do. It's the same. It's like having a, a heckler in, in the dark. And you turn to them and you go, what'd you say? And then they don't say anything. And you go, perfect. Okay. Interesting how people will back down. But the vast majority of people love your rants and your angry persona. I thought about the movie and the play, Network, which when it came out, you know, we thought, oh, this is such fabulous satire with the character. I'm mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. But do you think maybe, as in network, do you think people feel like you're cathartic for them? Well, I know the kids have said, yeah, you know, I like you because you're like my father, only you're funny. <laughs> a high compliment. And I've had people say, I really like you because of your philosophy, which is also high praise. I mean, I, I really, that makes me very happy. I think people who come to my shows, my audience gets it. They're people who don't get it. And they really shouldn't come to the show. I don't know why they're there. I don't know what they're thinking. And I've started to talk about that at the beginning of the show now. I just kind of go, look, if you're here and you expected something else, if something I say shocks you, then really that's on you, okay? Because there are plenty of places you could have found me saying things that are shocking, and uh, you didn't do due diligence, so you can't blame me. It's, uh, it's your fault. And don't interrupt what I'm doing. If you don't like it, don't laugh. That's what you get to do when you're in a theater. And you haven't been in a theater in a long time. So let's try to remember that. And I expect you to do it with me and any other comic who shows up in your town. Because there are people who pay money to see us. And they overpaid to see us. And they're going to be very upset when you open your mouth. They didn't come to hear your comment. At the end of each of your stand-up performances, you do a live stream show called The Rant Is Due. Listeners can also hear this on your podcast 
Rantcast. Can you tell us how this works? Do you read the submissions by audiences before you rant about what they send you? Yeah, I mean, I read what they send me, and it started six years ago, and it was it started as a Q and A kind of a thing, and grew into comments about the town, and then it grew into what's bothering you, and then it really became what's making you uh, mad. And it could be anything from serious to, uh, you know, something a, a yelling and screaming about chunky peanut butter. And so, um, I, what I do is, is I, I'll go into the uh, the town and like I'll be coming to Atlanta and uh, starting the day before, I'll start looking to see what stuff has come from Atlanta, and I'll start putting that aside. And I try to read what comes in from the audience that I'm performing for from the city I'm performing in, from the surrounding area that I'm in, to the state that I'm in. I want it to be a show about the place that I'm at. It's very personal. It's my TV show. It's, it's what I, I brought to The Daily Show and what The Daily Show gave back to me, and now I can read others. And uh, what's happening now, what happened just before the pandemic, about six to eight months were some of the best written rants I've ever seen. And then since then, we're getting back to it and they're getting better and better and better. And I keep, now I have to tell them for the first time ever, okay, guys, um, let's try to edit your stuff, okay? <laughs> now, you've, been, you've been in shutdown so long and I kind of get it. I understand that you really want to you know, talk, but get to the point. But I do very little of that. They're, they're really good at what they do, and, and stuff that comes up is completely and utterly surprising and goes from very, very funny to very, very sad. Can you recall what some of the best of those submissions from audience members have been? Well, there was one about a kid who was uh, going to become the first one that broke through and really and ended up in People Magazine. The Ooh. kids ranted, and so did the kid, because he was yelling about, um, he was entering the Mormon church. He was supposed to do it that week. It was when the Mormon church had kind of some blowback about gays. He couldn't, he basically chose to walk away from Mormonism because of that. And uh, it was a great piece, just a great, it was long. And I just said to people, all right, I'm going to read this, and, you know, it's longer than most, and you don't turn off because uh, you're you're really going to be surprised to hear this. And then then the other great one was somebody who opened up a the reason I said peanut butter. A guy opened up something that he he wanted um, chunky peanut butter, and it, it, it were I can't remember if it was chunky or smooth or smooth and chunky, but whatever it was, it wasn't. He let's say he wanted the. The smooth and it was chunky. He went psychotic and wrote this thing about <laughs> how much he hated chunky and that it had to be smooth and the chunky peanut butter meant that they were lazy and weren't doing their job. Oh, hey, I could have a rant about daylight saving time. Oh, yeah, exactly. Mm. Those came rolling in. Feel free. You got plenty of time. <laughs> If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. My guest is comedian Lewis Black. He's performing this Saturday, April 9th, at the Cobb Energy Center. During this tour, Lewis, your stand-up is focusing more on life indoors during the pandemic. What did your daily routine look like when you were sheltering in place? Basically, I talk about the way I responded to the pandemic because I didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't do well. And uh, I would walk, I was lucky because I had a place, a terrace and I could walk on my terrace and I would walk a mile or two miles a day on my terrace. Oh, wow. terrace. And up and down stairs, but uh, and then in the meantime, you know, I did nothing of you know that apparently a lot of people you know became better people. You know, they they uh, learned how to sous vide. They they, <laughs> they, they learned how to uh, to do their own sushi. They learned all sorts of skills, none of which interested me. I didn't even cook for myself. There you go. You live in New York, right? Right. 
you get takeout. It's just a way of life. And also, I think that the reason you don't cook for yourself is because it's the road to madness because of fractions. You are right. I mean, and then <laughs> you you got to convert grams and milligrams. Oh, Who yeah. needs that when you could just call in your order and get takeout? Exactly. I've wondered in all of your touring, and I think I read you do something like 200 shows a year? No, I used to. The only way I could do that now is if I was performing on a gurney with an IV drip. (laughs) I do about 100 to 110 and with a bunch of other stuff in between. I'm now the kind of titular chairman of the board of the um, Kurt Vonnegut uh, Museum and Library. So um, I work with them and I work as uh, the head of the advisory board of the National Comedy Center. We've spoken about that, and you've written about it. That is fantastic, and they're doing such amazing things. Yeah, they are. I wonder, do you find people making destination trips to Jamestown now? It started to happen. I mean, it kind of got whacked by the uh, pandemic, but they really did some great work to uh, sustain itself and um, uh, to continue to evolve. And now, hopefully, this summer will begin the the blossoming of it. And um, uh, in terms of uh, it becoming a destination, because you can go to there. Cleveland is an hour and ten away. You can go to uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. You can go to Niagara Falls, which is an hour and a half away. Uh, there's a casino that's an hour away. It's got everything you need. It's near Chautauqua, too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's near Chautauqua, which uh, people don't know is this kind of really extraordinary uh, bucolic, a word I rarely use, village. of. Uh, it's really quite something. It's uh, They get uh, really great speakers and performers in this uh, beautiful setting on a lake. And it's it started as a Methodist um for Methodist Sunday school teachers to go to and uh, rejuvenate and take some classes in the summer and has really grown into they have the, everything, um, the arts, sciences, pretty much and you, you name it, and something is going on that day that's involved with uh, basically uh, Im- improving our intelligence, a, a word that we've lost sight of, <laughs> intelligence. Well, it's a fabulous place and yes. for lifelong learning. And the only golf course in the world where there's actually along the way you, you're playing it and it says, and this is the spot where Amelia Earhart landed her plane <laughs> to go make her speech. And very close to Jamestown. Yes. I'm intrigued with the Kurt Vonnegut Library. Oh, when I was in college... I read every book he wrote. And then afterward, do you think he's sort of fallen off the radar? I'm glad to hear you're on the board there or at the helm because I thought he might have won a Nobel Prize. Well, I mean, you know, it's, he would have, but he's funny. So that always screws things up. <laughs> but I think that... Like the National Comedy Center, which came along at the right time. The Vonnegut Museum came along at the right time. And they do a lot of things. They deal with banned books and trying to uh, make sure that, uh, you know, that nonsense stops and they have uh, banned book readings. And then uh, the Writers Guild, which I work with too, is we just had a fundraiser the other night and they they kind of hooked up with the Vonnegut Museum in order to... uh, start also doing some work on banned books. And um, and they take up uh, the subjects that Kurt, uh, were near, near and dear to Kurt's heart. And, um, and it really does. And I also think that the great thing about Kurt Vonnegut is he's a great way. He's simple and profound at the same time. So he's a great way to get kids to start reading. Yes. Simple, profound, and funny. All important and great values. We were talking about kids who say they appreciate your philosophy. There's a lot of love and empathy in your rants and in what you take on. Well, that's very kind. I'm glad people see that. (laughs) Well, it's certainly apparent in 
your acknowledgement of your parents. And you mentioned your mom when we first started speaking. Is she 103 now? Yep. I will be seeing her um, shortly, actually. On my way down toward uh, Atlanta, I will stop in on the ride down and uh, stop in and see her for a couple hours. I've not had any time to get to her because I've been out west and running around. So now is a real opportunity. I get to see her a few times in the next month, so that's great. And is she still sharp as a tack? No, but she's she's still got a real working intelligence. And, and the thing is, is she you know drifts in and out, but she doesn't really drift out out. She doesn't have dementia or Alzheimer's, you know. And when she's when she's on, she's she's really on. <laughs> Even when she's making stuff up you know, where she's kind of gone back into a memory, she's got a through line that you only a working intelligence could maintain. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, you credit your parents in your shows, and your show has closed with your telling the audience, take care, yeah. be well, I love you. Yeah. I love your humor, Lewis Black, and I'm so glad you are back on the road and coming to Atlanta. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for letting me uh, spend time with you and getting the word out that I'm coming. And uh, otherwise, I'd have to wear a sandwich board around the town. So that's, <laughs> this really is a big help. It's been a pleasure again to spend time with you. I always enjoy it, and thank you. Comedian Lewis Black is performing his show off the rails on April 9th, that Saturday, at the Cobb Energy Center. More information will be on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, Balletnik Dance Company is coming to the Alliance Theater this weekend, and we'll speak with the co-founders, Nina Gilreth and Waverly Lucas. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Balletnik Dance Company is known for blending classical ballet with various styles from around the world. They've been doing this throughout the last 31 years, and now... Balletnik will perform on the stages of two celebrated institutions, Atlanta's Alliance Theater and the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Waverly Lucas and Nina Gilraith are the husband and wife co-founding duo of Balletnik. They join me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Life. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Thank you. Our pleasure. Well, we last spoke about Balletnik's 30th anniversary. What is the significance of these upcoming landmark performances for you and your dancers? What is so amazing to us after ooh, three plus decades, and I feel like we're getting recognized for some of the work that we've been doing all along. So we are tremendously excited that Susan Booth 
really had the bravery to bring us onto the Alliance Theater Coca-Cola stage to bring our signature ballet, The Leopard Tail, down to the Woodruff Arts Center. We're so excited because we think it's an important step because many times our audiences don't necessarily mix for various reasons. So we're excited to get on that newly renovated stage to show the kind of work that we've been doing for a really long time and to be in one of the world famous theaters that has a lot of resources to support the ballet in the way that we would like it to be seen. Oh, I think that's fantastic. Nina, for those who are not familiar with Ethnic, I was hoping you would reiterate how you discovered classical ballet and talk about what it was like growing up as a Black dancer in the South within that discipline. Wow. So I always love to move and to dance. I watched every type of program on TV, including the Lawrence Wilk show, which probably dates me (laughs) very much. But anything that was dance back in the day, I watched. I watched ballets on TV and I never saw dancers that looked like me. So there was this question mark, is it possible for me? But I just love dancing and continued to create and choreograph in my basement with my brother and sister. And then Finally, I discovered that there was the North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, and I auditioned and was accepted, and that's where I really got my professional start. I did train at a smaller studio, Knipe School of Dance, in my hometown, and that gave me my first foundation. But after being at the School of the Arts, I realized that, you know, there weren't many Black ballet dancers professionally, and I had the audacity to come from a little small town where most everybody worked in factories to believe that I could do this thing. So my big, big epiphany was when I later saw the Dance Theater of Harlem. Mm. I saw them on TV first, and then I saw them in person, and then I auditioned for them. So my story, I'm like really collapsing it. But when I saw the Dance Theater of Harlem, I saw like black and brown dancers from all over the world. And I knew that was me. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I eventually moved to New York and danced with the Dance Theater of Harlem. And that's where I met Waverly. And that started the trajectory of really wanting to be in a place where I could provide the representation that I did not see. Mm. Waverly, you've worked in dance and choreography all over the world. Do your experiences performing and teaching in places such as South America, West Africa, and even the former USSR, do those inform your ideas for Ethnic's fusion of dance styles? Yes, Lois, absolutely. People say ethnic, they define it in different ways. I define ethnicity as in societies of people that come from uh, specific cultures. And that's how I, how I define it. Ethnic's history has been one of diversity. People are into diversity now and inclusion now but we, I believe, were born out of diversity and inclusion. And so I think the ethnicity means it's about our love for and passion for different ethnic entities and cultures and how I think we try to marry them and we also observe them and respect them and honor them. That's what I love most. When I was a young boy in Detroit, I remember my mother would go to work and she would take the... uh, cords from the televisions with her so that we wouldn't watch television. So I would go down in the uh, basement and there was this huge library and I would just look through all of the encyclopedias and everything. And I'd go to Africa, to Asia, to just all the different you know countries and watch wildlife, watch all everything through and then imagine it from reading and observing the photographs in the books. So I think that's what has motivated me. And that's what The Leopard Tale is about that genuine, authentic love that I had as a child. 
Well, let's talk about this signature ballet. You'll perform the leopard's tail. What's the story behind this dance? Ooh, it's it's a great story in that the first act, the ballet occurs in the leopard's domain. So it's all about the leopard and the animals that surround him on the savanna as he goes about his daily life, looking for food, hunting for food. He's discovered his mate, the leopardess. So there's a mating pas de deux, which is kind of sensual and sexy. And we see the leopard kittens that are with them. And then they run across the lions in the jungle and zebras. And then there's vultures, there's snakes, because as the leopard travels and he's looking for water, he runs upon the rainforest. And he runs into a den of venomous snakes. So there's the snake dance. He also hunts a gazelle and successfully catches a a gazelle. And then there's a stampede of the animals as the monkeys tell everyone that there's danger on the horizon. story in that when we first started the leopard tail as Waverly spoke of inclusivity we wanted to showcase all hues and shades of people all sizes of people and what better way to do that than to tell a story about animals and so Waverly he went away to do a guesting for a nutcracker in Detroit and when he came back he had written this full first act story So what was exciting for us, we were able to talk to families about ballet in a way that says you don't have to be 5'3", 5'4", and weigh 90 pounds. You can be your size and healthy and be in the leopard tail and dance and be successful. So we were able to have very tall dancers, very short dancers, whether they were male, female, and they were able to be a part of this jungle story. And it was a way for us to talk about conservation before it was popular because we started working on the leopard tail. Actually, when we were dancing at the Atlanta Ballet in 88 and 89, that's when we first started on it. So we were talking about this long ago and talking about animals being endangered or extinct. And it was just a way to go beyond dance, which made it possible for us to include so many other people. Because many times you have people that say, oh, I don't like dance, I don't like ballet, but they love animals and people want to save animals. So that was a way to get many, many people interested in what we were doing. We started with creating act two first. So that was a way that we could talk about cultural dance and that we could work with some of our African dance friends and really dive deep into African dance concepts and explore the two contrasts between your very traditional upright ballet and then your very grounded African dance and have a purpose just to celebrate community and build community. And uh, we met one of our friends, L. Gerard Reed, who attended the North Carolina School of the Arts just like I did. And he worked with Waverly to create the Act One original score. And then we met many, many drummers over time throughout metropolitan Atlanta. And we were able to create the live drumming score for Act Two. And what is really tremendous to me in this journey of getting this ballet to the Alliance Theater on the Coca-Cola stage, many of the, the dancers and the drummers will have been with us for 25, almost 30 years, especially Dr. Teresa Howard, who dances throughout the community. She has been with us for many years. Poppy Barago, who's one of the lead drummers, Barake, a lead drummer, and again, El Gerard Reed and Haroon. So these are people that range in age from 62 to 71. 
So our village really is multi-generational from age six. And I always say, if you're lucky and blessed, you can live to be very old or older and still be active. So this ballet is a testament. You know, some of the steps are for the young and many of us that started out being the younger animals, we've aged into the older parts, which is really beautiful because we have gracefully transitioned and passed the torch. So the ballet is really, the production is so much more than dance. It is just really about celebrating life. And we're excited to be able to do that at the Alliance Theater. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the co-founders of Balethnic Dance Company, Nina Gilreath and Waverly Lucas. I read that at the Kennedy Center, Balethnic's performance is part of a week-long celebration of Black ballet artistry called Reframing the Narrative. What are the goals of that program, and, and what do you hope the community takes away from it? Well, I've always felt that what we were doing at Ethnic was reframing the narrative of ballet and the narrative of African dance concepts. So, you know, our unique blend of the two, finding a way to marry the two by utilizing the similarities, but also by embracing the differences of the two is what's very important of it. Another aspect is that Nina and that group is unique as the only female, the first and only female co-founder of one of the three professional American Black ballet companies. And that's something that's often overlooked. I remind her of how significant that is, you know, because I, yeah, I look at the accomplishment of women, and she kind of flew under the radar by doing that, you know? Really important that you pointed that out, Waverly. Thank you. You know, Nina mentioned Dance Theater of Harlem. One thinks about Alvin Ailey, Bill T. Jones. The tradition of Classical ballet is, for most people, understood to be white and European. And there are so many contributions by non-white artists that have been overlooked. Are there some hidden figures in this field we should be better acquainted with? I would say, first and foremost, Lydia Arbaca Mitchell. She's our ballet mistress here at, and rehearsal mistress at Ethnic, but she was the original ballerina of Dance Theater of Harlem. She was the first Black prima ballerina on the cover, to grace the cover of Dance Magazine. She was a trailblazer, and often she's overlooked uh, as far as the history of ballet. Recently, a lot of that is being corrected. You know, I just was reminded that Catherine Dunham is often overlooked when people talk about Ailey or the other predominantly male-led Black ensembles as well. Yes. Yeah, we had the privilege of meeting her when she was alive and performed at her 80th birthday celebration at Jacob's Pillow. Ooh. And she, yeah, it was really amazing because she has been very inspirational to us because she was on film, on TV. She was blending all of the cultural dances. She was so strong and so courageous. So when we met her, we were just really sitting at her feet and amazed at what she was able to accomplish. Yes, I would say Dr. Dunham is actually one of the reasons that I completed my master's of ethnochoreology at the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance of the University of Limerick in Ireland, because she actually at that performance told me that I was continuing the work that she had started, but she warned me that, well, she challenged me and said that I needed to 
go through academia to, so that it's not ignored. And so that was one of the things uh, along with uh, Dr. Pearl Primus who coached Balethnik for our very first concert. And then Baba Chuck Davis were the three as well as my mother who wanted me to do that. And so I just feel very proud now to say that on April 23rd, I will be finally graduating as officially with the ceremony as class of 2020 in Ireland. How thrilling. Will you go to Ireland to receive the degree? Yes. Yes, I will. Nina, do you get to go too? He wants me to go, but I will not be going on this trip because there's so much to do to get ready for the upcoming things that we're doing. So not this go round, but hopefully I will be able to visit Ireland. But I wanted to also not to cut anybody off. I want to add, we should talk about Mrs. Spriggs Waverly when we talk about those hidden figures, Mrs. Moselle Spriggs, who was the chairman of dance at Spelman College. She Ah. is the person that really introduced us to the legacy holders of Black dance. We first met Judith Jameson when we were on the campus of Spelman. Mrs. Spriggs gave us our first jobs when we left the Atlanta Ballet, and that's how we both were introduced into teaching for academia and choreographing and the array of things that we were able to learn to do beyond dancing on stage. Mrs. Briggs introduced us to Dr. Pearl Primus, just so many extraordinary people because she really was holding that history by inviting so many dancers from New York and other places to Spelman College. So when we decided to start a company, we went over to meet her on the day that we started Ethnic. She was like, I've always wanted this. This has been a lifelong dream. And she really supported us. And she still does. She was able to attend our last performance of the Urban Nutcracker in December. And she was just beautiful. She had such kind words. And there were scholarships given in her name during those performances. What a remarkable legacy. I mean, and now you're in the Pantheon, both of you as well. I should have mentioned Judith Jamison. She popped into mind. I thought, wait a minute. Ailey wasn't all male. I mean, she she was at the helm for mm, 10, yes. 15 years as artistic yes. director, wasn't she? Or longer. Yes. Yes. And she was just really our goddess for so long. When we look at African dance queens on the stage, yes. she... She gave us all of that beauty, technique, and poise and ability. She also uh, wrote our first letter of support. Ooh. Oh, I forgot about that. There's so much mm-hmm. to remember. Wow. <laughs> Which makes me think about we're getting an intern through Dance USA to start our archive, starting with Urban Nutcracker. So we're really excited to begin documenting our history, which is really powerful because many artists do not think about that. And then all of a sudden, like for us, it's actually, it's been 32 years in January. You look up and you go, where did time go? Because you just can't keep up with it. It goes so fast. (laughs) Well, I congratulate you on the nearly 32 years of creativity and on the thrill of performing at the Alliance and the Kennedy Center. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. It's always a pleasure. We love you. We listen to you. And you're always part of our day. Thank you for what you do for our community. It is so important. And back at you. Nina Gilreath and Waverly Lucas, co-founders of Balethnik Dance Company in Atlanta. Balethnik will perform at the Alliance Theater April 8th through 10th this weekend, and they'll perform at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. in mid-June. More information will be on our website, wabe.org. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. 
It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Artemis Jenkins, and I am an experimental ethnographer. Ethnography is essentially creating a portrait of people. And I really put a lot of flair, you know, into the things that I research and study with my documentary filmmaking. So aside from filmmaking, I also do photography. I draw and do illustration. I mix things up in my art. I mix images together and tell cohesive stories. The way that I got started in art, I used to draw Ninja Turtles way back when, when I was like six years old. You know, the Ninja Turtles had a strong chokehold on young children in the late 80s and early 90s. They were my original muses. And from there, you know, I just kept drawing uh, comic book characters. Over time, I started drawing portraits, like realistic, you know, kind of portraits. Things that motivate and inspire me are rooted in being able to create my own reality. Knowing that if I was to just stop making art, I would basically be cutting off the potential ways that I could interact with the world, have an impact on the world, speak for myself and others like me. That's something that I can do just by continuing to do art. Oh yeah, you can make a living too. You know, it's, it's so much that you can do with art. Like it really is a limitless practice, a limitless way of life. I choose to call Atlanta home because over time it's been a reasonably priced place. But, um, you know, with this Airbnb stuff and this rent stuff, like the rent be going up and don't nothing even be changing. Like, so it's getting a little out of hand. But over the time where Atlanta was easier to live in, it influenced my art directly because, you know, I just had the time. Like, if you really go and put in a good art grind in Atlanta or just really building anything new, like exploring anything about yourself, like Atlanta has just been a good place to do that. Like Atlanta in itself, historically, has been a bit of an incubator for people, for businesses. You know, I think that's why it's always changing. That's why it's such a fluid place. Atlanta is a place, you know, where you can go through a few different phases work them out and actually come out with something successful. The places where I like to see new art in our city are in Castleberry Hill. Castleberry Hill for over 13 years has just been pushing out like some of the rawest, most innovative art in the city. And a lot of that has flowed through the City of Inc. Collective, that space in, Cas in Castleberry on Walker Street. It's um, a tattoo shop, but it's also an art gallery. And it has provided a lot of new artists in Atlanta with an opportunity to exhibit work to the public for the first time. Like you organize your own exhibit, you do your marketing, you come up with the body of work, and it stays up for 30 days in an unconventional space. You know, it's not a gallery, so the influx of people and walking traffic, you know, that you're gonna get in a space like that is way different. Brand new stuff, where the messaging hasn't been repurposed, where the artist is still operating in his most authentic voice. I think City of Ink is a dope place to do that. So Castleberry Hill is really the place that I think, you know, a lot of people should continue to look. It's, it's where I like to look. For those listeners who wanna look and see my work, um, you know, I do exhibitions from time to time. I don't have one up right now, but ArtemisJenkins.com. If you spell my name right, you will be led to work by me, period. My name is spelled A-R-T-E-M-U-S Jenkins, J-E-N-K-I-N-S. And um, I'm developing a new space where I will be showing my current body of work. I've been documenting the Atlanta arts and culture scene for the past 10 years. And I'm putting that all in one space. And that space is 333.inspiredcity.com. It's designed to get us away from Instagram and like really put everything in one place, you know, so you don't have to be distracted by all of the Instagram-y things. So if you want to just focus on the art, those are the two websites you can go to. Thank you. 
experimental ethnographer Artemis Jenkins in our series Speaking of the Arts. You can learn more about Jenkins and his work on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., organist Jens Kornderfer stops by ahead of the upcoming concert with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. Plus, we'll hear from the founders of Zilch Market, a non-alcoholic pop-up bar, and director Ebi Olabi and actor Valea E. Woodbury share the story behind Intimate Apparel on stage now at Actors Express. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.